0: Maybe it's better when the sermon sneaks up on me like that. I appreciate, appreciate the good job. If you, uh, somebody can get Jack to stop smiling back there, it's, it's distracting me. I don't. In unrelated news, I changed all the buttons on my shirt this afternoon, so they popped off. That's what happened. Thank you for all your sweet words. Connected, ready, equipped, and willing. If you wonder what crew stands for, it's not just a collection of folks who are in the same part of life, being young adults in college, in trade school, or bound by some number on a calendar. It is a, a, a goal as much as it is a statement of identification. And we want to do all that we can to encourage and help uh, these young people, these young adults as they are moving into a very important part of their lives, I believe. But there are a few very critical moments in life, and this is one of them. And we're so glad to have our, the crew back with us, those who have gone away for the summer and have come back, we're not the same, we're not uh, as whole as when you're here with us, and we're grateful that you're here. And we want to pledge to you through the ways that we can of how we want to make you connected to us we want to make you ready in the 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 way. Equip you as we're trying to equip everyone for eternity and to create in you the heart of Jesus, a willing heart. And so again, we're glad that you're back. In two weeks and five days, we're going to have our Equipping Everyone for Eternity seminar. It is somewhat of an unusual format. We'll begin on Friday night, and we will have a Saturday morning only sessions from 9 to 12. We'll be done for the day then, but it will all be focused from that beginning on Friday night till Saturday about noon on how we can be a stronger congregation, how we can serve the Lord better. It was four years and about three months ago that Kathy and I sat down with elders in Nashville, Tennessee, and the first words that they said to us is are you ready for a challenge understanding the challenge that lays before us in this world every church has the same challenge but a group of men who are ready and willing to take that on and to try to turn the world upside down from the local area building out into all the world And so everything that we're striving to do our vision our strategic plan is to help us to try to be a stronger church we need to understand how we can adequately answer that question of how we can be a strong church. And so I want us to look at the place where we're going to find all the answers we need and that's in the Word of God. LifeWay Research did a very extensive, broad study on what they deemed to be spiritually and numerically growing churches. And they looked at the traits and the factors that led to this. And the five top traits that they saw that made for thriving, growing churches was strong leadership that was well-connected to the participants. That's the way that they put that. That they had a clear and challenging vision. That they were those in their approach to church life and whatever else you might say that were vibrant in the worship that they provided that they were those who were engaged in their community. And so as they gave this list of ideas of what made a church strong, these were neutral commodities, neither right nor wrong. But as you dig into the criteria, you see that without a biblical foundation, these can be unbiblical or unacceptable approaches. What makes for a good leader? What makes for a strong and vibrant worship, what makes the change right or wrong? How do we go about our mission and what is our mission? But they provided us with something very important that I want us to launch off of tonight, and that is that we can discern, we can measure what makes a church strong. And if we were to look for a church in the New Testament that we could pattern after and look at to see how we, like them, could be a strong church, I don't know that we could find a church that's any better than the church in Ephesus. When you see that the, book, uh, that the church at Ephesus is a church that is spoken of in the history books of the church, they're also found in the letters section, the epistles of the New Testament. And we find it in that book of prophecy Three of the four types of literature in the New Testament talk about the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus seems to be a strong church, and there are reasons why. Think about the preachers who spent some time in Ephesus. As God chose, through the foolishness of preaching, to save those that believe, think about the individuals Paul sent to the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, in what's today Turkey. You had the Apostle Paul. He's there in Acts chapter 18 through Acts chapter 20 for three years. You have Timothy, the man he trained, is the one that was, uh, Paul was his mentor, who was there for an undisclosed amount of time. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. Tychicus was there. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, one of Paul's co laborers. And they were very strongly influenced by the apostle whom Jesus loved, John. He writes them. Seemingly with some knowledge of them and relationship with them in Revelation chapter 2. In fact, early church tradition tells us that John spent the last years of his life in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus had great teaching and preaching over a long period of time to help to strengthen them. Then there's also the strategic location of Ephesus for the church. And you begin to see how important this, uh, si- this city was to the Roman Empire, that it had two public squares, and it had gymnasiums. It had public baths and latrines, which was not something that was widely available in the first century world. And they had all kinds of upper-class houses with beautiful frescoes that would tell you that this was one of the elite cities of the world, and it was a regional city in the observance and the worship of the gods of the Romans. God put the church at Ephesus there and built that spiritual infrastructure. And so it's no surprise when you get to the book of Ephesians and you read about the theme of that book that the theme of Ephesians is to exalt the church of the Christ. So as we look at the church that we see in the book of Ephesus, we can come to see how we can be a strong church. And in this book, the depicting of the church in the book of Ephesians, as we've observed before, he paints several pictures. That the church is this and the church is that. That the church is a a family. That the church is like a marriage. The church is a body. The church is a temple. The church is an army. And before that last picture, near the end of the book, the Apostle Paul takes some time to talk to us about what makes the church strong. And he speaks to uh, the church at Ephesus. And he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind and take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but our fight is against principalities and powers and the spiritual forces of wickedness and the spiritual rulers in heavenly places that are uh, ungodly. He says, so take up the full armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil days and having done all to stand firm, stand firm therefore. There in Ephesians 6, 10 through 14, I want us to just see three things that will make a church a strong church. We want to look at this so we can learn from them, but we want to look at this so that we can imitate them. And when we look at the things that are found just in those few verses, in Ephesians 6:10 through 14, here's what we find makes a strong church. Number one, a strong church finds its strength in God. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You know, it's an interesting thing to do, and, and we can do it with abundance around here. Go up to somebody and ask them where they go to church. And ask them perhaps why they like or enjoy going to that particular congregation. And they will tell you they'll be proud of that. If not, they probably wouldn't go there. And if you ask them what makes the church great, they're liable to give you a lot of different answers. They may say something like, look at the size of our congregation, the number of people that go. Or maybe they'll say, look at the influential people that go to church with us. Or I want you to look at the size of our budget." Or observe the beauty of the facilities that we have. Or maybe look at the number of programs that we have going on. And again, these are neutral, neither good nor bad. But they are not true indicators in and of themselves of the greatness of a church. It would seem to me that if we were going to try to boil it down and say, what's the most important thing for identifying a strong church, we would say that it is a church where God cannot be hidden. He is visible and on full display. When you go into a church that's great in God's eyes, you're going to see them in all that they say and all that they do and all the plans that they make. They are focused on, centered on God. Lord willing is not just a motto, it's a way of life. And when it comes to what they're going to do and who they're going to be, they are going to consult first, last, and always the Word of God. And when things go well... And they're succeeding and things are really, we talk about momentum or whatever you want to say, they are quick to give God the credit and Him the glory. And when things are going poorly and there are setbacks, they are going to be sure to trust in God, even in those times. And so what Paul says to the church here at Ephesus as he's winding down this letter is to be a strong church, you've got to derive your strength from God. Now that's a wonderful statement. But how do we measure that? How do we know if we are being strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might? There is an interesting phrase that's found in the Old Testament mostly, a few dozen times. And it is basically, the Lord is my strength. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit wrote all 66 books of the Bible and so when the Bible is saying to these Bible writers God is speaking through them and saying the Lord is my strength whatever he connects to that phrase I want to pay attention to now this is not exhaustive but for the sake of time I want us to notice three phrases or three things that are associated in that phrase the Lord is my strength the first one is the Lord is my strength and my song that's the first way that we find our strength in God is to sing Now this goes all the way back to the first writer of the Bible, Moses. They have come out of the land of Egypt. They have crossed through the Red Sea. They have observed the Passover. They're on their way to the promised land. The Egyptians are drowned as they try to follow them. And on the other side, Moses stops the children of Israel and they sing a song together. And at the head of that song, he says, the Lord is my strength and my song. What's interesting to me is that other Old Testament writers will quote Moses in different periods of time. How about the sweet songwriter of Israel, David? In Psalm 118 and verse 14, he is going to say, The Lord is my strength and my song. Or how about Isaiah, the prophet of all the prophets who is known to write poetry? He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. With all that the Bible says about the importance of singing to being the people of God, we're not surprised to see the Apostle Paul in his letter connecting the strength of the church to singing. Now I'm not saying that a church has got to be known throughout the brotherhood as the best sounding singing congregation. We may measure it one way. But the Apostle Paul says, Do you want to be one who follows the Lord? Do you want to be filled with the Spirit of God? Then speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. You want to know a a strong church? It is a church that is so full of gratitude and joy for all that God has done that they can't help but to sing that. A, A church that is strong in the strength of the Lord is a singing church. But another mark of that is found for us in Psalm chapter 28 in verse 7 when the the psalmist says the Lord is my strength and my shield. How do you become strong in the Lord? You've got to get behind Him. You've got to submit to Him. You have got to let Him lead in the battle. You remember David in Psalm 3. The Psalms are not written in chronological order because Psalm 3 is devoted to David running away from his son Absalom and that happens way later in David's life, way after Psalm 51. But in that Psalm, he's running away from his son and he says that the Lord is my strength and my shield. He says he is my glory, the lifter of my head. What David understood is what we need to understand and that is that when we go into battle, we must go behind the Lord. Do we believe spiritually what God's people believe physically in Moses' day? In Deuteronomy 1.30 and 31, referring to what I just mentioned a moment ago, the exodus out of Egypt, he says that the Lord has led you. You have gone behind him into battle from the days of Egypt when I did these, these things before your eyes and in the wilderness when I carried you like a man carries his son and brought you to this place. Paul takes up that idea. What he indicates to us is that we find ourselves in a battle. We are fighting, and he talks about what we're not, and we'll say more about that in a moment, but because we are in the battle, we need to realize that we've got to follow him and know that he will lead us to victory as he always has. When we look at our leader, we think about the ideas of, Songs like Austin Miles. I don't know if we've ever sung this one here. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go. Are you familiar with that song? I love that song. I especially like the last verse. He says, It is not mine to question the judgments of my Lord. It is but mine to follow the leadings of His word. And if to go or stay or rather here or there, I'll be with my Savior content anywhere. You know the song we sing sometimes, leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. The idea is there we put on the armor of God. David did not want to put on Saul's armor because he had something better. And so do we. We have the armor of God, the shield of faith, and we can go into battle. What would it be like? If we developed a reputation as a people who were so submissive to the will of God that people could count on if it's our worship of what we teach about God's plan of salvation in any doctrinal, ethical matter that we're going to be driven by this word and we're going to let the Lord lead us into those battles. If we're going to be strong in the strength of His might, we need to open up our hearts in song. We need to open up our hearts and our minds to His word. But another statement in which this is uh, this idea of the Lord is my strength is in Psalm chapter 18 and verse one. I love you, O Lord, my strength. There in Psalm 18 and verse one, you have an affection that God hears from His people, and it's a reciprocated love. It's a love that originated in heaven. First John 4:19. We love Him because we were first loved. There is not a person on this earth. That I love more than Kathy and I draw such strength from her love. And I know that that's the way God intended that for marriage from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. But when we are known as a people who love God more than anyone or anything, we're going to have a reputation as being a strong church. When you think about what Paul does in the book of Ephesians with the love of God, it's an incredible study all of its own. He starts the letter by saying that He predestined and He called you in love. Because He loves you, He set you apart through His Son. Hey, it's even better than that. Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5, even when you were dead in trespasses and sins, in His great love, He loved you and He made you alive. How about in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19, He rooted you, He grounded you. He made it so that you cannot be pulled up and taken away through His love that surpasses your knowledge. And how about Ephesians 5, verse 2 and verse 21, when He has a love for you that caused Him to give it all up for you. God lays it out there in this letter that He strengthens you by knowing about His love, but then what does He turn around and say? In in the very last verse of the book, He says, grace be unto all of you, who love the Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. When I am hit with an understanding of how great God's love is for me. I am not going to have a love that decays or that it's destroyed or that ceases. What would it do for the growth and the strength of this church? That every single time that somebody comes in and visits our assemblies or they come into our homes, they leave saying, Lehman Avenue is a church in love with God. And if they thought that, would this be a strong church? As we look at what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 6, he tells us that a strong church is a church that finds its strength in God. But listen, there's a second and very important element to being a strong church, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. A strong church is a church that knows its true enemy. We have enemies. We need to be able to identify who the enemy is. But in order to do that, we've got to understand who the enemy is not. And I want you to hear me very carefully in what I'm about to say. Those that the Bible call the lost are not our enemies. They're not our adversaries. Now, they may make our life very difficult. They may not like us. They may not love us. They may make false assumptions about us. And our Lord is understanding of that and foresaw that. You know what he says when they demonstrate that to us? He says, Pray for them and love them. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. It's hard for us not to take it personally when someone who the Bible classifies as outside of Christ is following the world. It's hard for us not to make them our adversary. Our enemy, our adversary, is not our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even those brothers and sisters in Christ who are in error. Now, we may not be able to have fellowship with them in that error, but we are to love them and to reach out to them and to do all that we can to restore fellowship. Because the Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, I urge you to walk worthy of the vocation or the calling with which you were called with all loneliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so even though there may be some hard discussions, some difficult things to say... This is the bride of Christ and he wants us to understand that our brethren in error are not our adversaries. Our political opponents are not our adversaries. They may hold views that are unbiblical and we need to talk about the Bible and what it says about those things and if we can, take it out of the realm of politics. The Bible makes it very clear in our context That human flesh and blood is not the enemy. Now we've got to stand tall for our Lord and not be cowards on the battlefield. Revelation 21 and verse 8. But the Bible tells us how we go about that. That we do so patiently, kindly, able to teach, understanding they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. We're going to be patient with them, loving with them. So who is the enemy? Well, he identifies it for us, doesn't he? He says that the devil is the enemy. And he doesn't want us to understand that he's the enemy. One of his greatest ploys that he likes to use, 2 Corinthians 2.11 says he has schemes, he has ploys, and he likes to use them on us so that we'll be deceived and we'll fall for it. And if we don't see him behind this, if we don't see him as the enemy, then we'll turn on one another. And we'll focus in the wrong place and we won't realize who it is that influences this world in the way that it is. The devil is our enemy and God equips us to fight this formidable foe. We need to understand that he may work through those individuals that we've talked about. And so God has a message for us. He says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Ephesians 4.27 Instead, resisting and he'll flee from you. James 4.7 Resist him steadfast in your faith because there are others who are going through the same thing that you're going through throughout the world. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 9 Understand that the devil is the enemy. And alongside of that, the enemy is these spiritual forces of darkness. These ideas. They're not your political opponents. They're not your brethren who may have hurt you. They're not those who espouse those evil things. And so God has indicated to us, if we can keep ourselves from brotherhood and national politics if we can keep ourselves from personality conflicts, if we can keep ourselves from embroiling in controversial things that we have no power to change, that the gospel has the power to change, how strong will the church be? You see, when we come to understand those that are struggling and losing and are following these forces that we're talking about, they need us as a church. God wants us to stand forthright and firm on what truth is. To understand what the Bible calls sin and to stand with God and against those things even if it hurts us and causes us to suffer in some way. So even though we may be clear on what the Bible says, let me just give you a couple of examples. We know that the Bible tells us that homosexuality is a sin. But what folks should know is is that we are a church that loves and serves and ministers to those who are struggling with anything. And we're going to walk alongside of them. We may want to make sure that we get out the word that we love and we cherish all life, including the unborn. But we're ready and willing to minister to someone who may be fighting the guilt of a decision to take up the life of their unborn child. What would it do to the strength of this church if we had the reputation of Jesus? Matthew 11 and verse 19, the Bible says, Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And you know what Jesus says about that? Wisdom is justified of her children. What does he mean by that? He's saying that I'm going to be vindicated ultimately. By who? By God. Because God's the one who reveals right and wrong. And I'm doing what's right by reaching out to those who are struggling with any sin, whatever it is. If we could give ourselves the reputation as we follow Jesus as being a church that is ministering to those who are sin sick and who come alongside of them and help them whatever they're dealing with, this will be a strong church. Paul says we're not wrestling, we're not fighting against physical adversaries, but spiritual adversaries. And we want to reach them with the word of God. The third thing that makes a church strong is that it is a, a strong church is a church that, is, that does not have spectators. He says, take up the full armor of God. I don't know what your sports season is. Some of you are saying I don't have a sports season. I like football. That's my sports season. And we're coming into it, right? We've got preseason football going on and college football is about to kick in a couple of weeks. I didn't realize this, though, but the NFL has a fan of the year contest for every single club. And so every team has a a pool of candidates that submit their candidacy to be the fan of the year. And I was reading through some of those, and I don't know that it's easy to beat the Atlanta Falcons fan of the year. He won the award in 2021 and 2023. And here's the thing about Henry Eisen. He went to his first football game as soon as he got back from serving a tour in Vietnam in 1968. He got his first season tickets purchased in 1971. He had as many as 24 tickets in a single season, and he invited friends and family, and they would go to the games together. But Ison was such a a good fan that during the season, he never travels unless the team travels. And a lot of his decisions are influenced by the team. When the team began to be partnering with Ford Motor Company, he bought a Ford. And then they decided to build a stadium down there in Georgia. Did you hear about that? Mercedes-Benz. And so he traded in his Ford and he got a Mercedes-Benz. That's a fan right there. But I suggest to you that there's not any time soon where the Falcons are going to ask Henry Eisen to get on the field and to play a position. Now, he's in great shape for his age, but he's 77 years old. And he would tell you that he was never in good enough shape to play in the NFL or never skilled enough, but he doesn't have to be because he's a fan. His job is to sit in the stands and to cheer on those who are actually on the field and doing something. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we have empty stadiums, if you will, in the church. There are no fans in the stands, or they're, they're not supposed to be. He says, I want you to take on or to take up, to put on the full armor of God. This is a military uh, imagery metaphor that the Apostle Paul is using here. He's saying, I want you to take the final preparation, the last step before the battle is on. God wants His people, all of us, to be suited up and on the field, the battlefield. The Roman soldiers' uh, armor weighed 25 pounds but his pack that he carried with him took a hundred pounds. And so you can imagine it took all of his energy and all of his effort to get all of that onto the battlefield to be successful in war. And so we're going to read in the passage that was read by Todd a moment ago in Ephesians 6:14 through 18, about all of that armor that God has given to us. But armor is worn by participants, not by spectators. There are no seasoned ticket holders in the body of Christ that sit up to be entertained, to cheer what they like, and to boo what they don't like. The question is, how do we get ourselves ready to get out of the stands and onto the field? Just a couple of quick thoughts. The first thing all of us should be doing on an ongoing basis is do spiritual inventory. A different metaphor, it's the body in Romans chapter 12, verse 4 through 8. And he says, a body has many members, but that one body made up of those uh, individual members, every one serves a purpose. And so he says that each one of us is given a gift according to the grace of God. And so he lists out what some of those are. It's things like prophecy, it's teaching, it's mercy, it's giving, it's leading, it's exhortation. And so he says that we are to look for our gift and then we're to exercise it accordingly. When's the last time you sat down and you said, as I look at these potential gifts that God gives to those in the body of Christ, what's mine? What should I be excelling in to help the church to grow? That's how we can get onto the battlefield. It's to say, where can God use me? As I look at this word as a mirror in my life, I take spiritual inventory. Another thing I can do is look for partners. This is a powerful concept in the New Testament. Jesus in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1 is concerned about the loss of the household of Israel and so he encourages 70 of his disciples, of his followers. This is more than the apostles. And he sends them out two by two. So maybe there's somebody you can partner with and say, hey, let's have the teens into our home for a devotional. Let's host an event together. Let's do something. Let's teach a class together. Maybe we'll split the duties in that. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 9 is a biblical principle that two are better than one. Maybe you're afraid to launch out by yourself. Ask somebody else to help you. It always makes it easier when there's someone alongside of you. But a third thing we can do, and I've said it before, I'm one of the world's worst, and the announcements come into the church office Linda does a great job of putting them out in about 75, 76 different ways that you can get a hold of those things. But Listen to the announcements. Every sick and shut-in person, every event that's going on, visitation and hospitality and uh, attending and supporting congregational events, these are things that every one of us can do, and there's something that are needed on an ongoing basis to tune in and ask ourselves, where does the need exist? One of the frustrations of leadership that's always trying to be addressed is, how can we pull more people in to have more people to be involved in the work of the church? That's the burden of leadership. What's the burden of a soldier on the battlefield? That is, when we become a part of the body of Christ in a given location like Lehman Avenue, we come in saying, I'm going to tune in, I'm going to listen and hear what needs are out there. And there are so many ongoing needs that never adequately get addressed and cannot be done enough. And they're meaningful ways to serve God. And when we do, you know what happens? We have a stronger church as the result of all of that. God wants this church strong. And He has shown us how to do that. And the way that we do that is we realize that all of us are active participants. We're not passive, watching the things going on. You know what that does? That solves us calling the church they. What are they doing down there? What are, or the, 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 the church you. That's not how we speak when we're soldiers. Hey, who is it that has an easier time screaming their lungs out? Is it the spectator in the uh, the stands or is it the one on the field who's using those lungs for every play, play after play? And so it is, it seems sometimes some of the loudest hecklers are those who are sitting on the sidelines and not on the battlefield. We look at what the Apostle Paul says. He says it three times, only three times in the New Testament. Stand firm. It is a firmly military metaphor. It means to take your post it means to hold out it's the idea of you take that heel and you you keep it and you don't surrender it to the enemy that's what God said to the church at Ephesus do you think that's the message for the church at Lehman Avenue does he want us standing firm holding out no matter what the opposition is no matter what the challenge that we face whether it's a big challenge that frightens us like moving our location Somewhere else. And the cost and the change that's involved in that. Or if it's just talking to somebody about Jesus or volunteering to teach a class. God says stand firm. I can't help but be excited when I think about Bowling Green. We have a unique opportunity here. And really it is one that I don't know that we emphasize enough. 15% of our growing population are international people. Did you know that in Warren County, 85 native tongues are spoken? I forgot the other day, and Dan and I went to see Anna Christie, and forgot Anna Christie doesn't live there anymore. And so I went up to the house, and we finally we knocked on the door. There were two ladies sitting out there on the porch, and I started talking to them, and they said no English. And found out that they're from the Congo. I can speak about ten words of Swahili. Dan saw me use every one of them in trying to make a connection. But you know what? We have a new Christian named Jonas Guishi. Guess what he speaks? Swahili. Do you realize that we have the opportunity, God's opened doors for us so that we can share the gospel not only with the people that live here, But the people that they know that we may never meet and physically get to in other countries in the world, is it coincidental that God has put this here among us? What should we do with it? Then you look at Bowling Green itself. It is growing as an attractive place to be. There's different ways to measure that. It is has made the, the list of one of the most attractive places to live because of low unemployment and high satisfaction with jobs, a lot of different factors. It makes the leading places of America. And there is a, an, another major study that was done. Do they always do these top 100 cities in the United States? Did you know that Bowling Green is in the top 100 best cities in America to live? 88? I don't understand who the other 87 are. But we're, we're in the top 100. So people are coming. God needs this church strong. So that we can reach and meet That challenge that grows each and every day. We're not Ephesus. Maybe we're in an even greater opportunity than they were. But he also has the church so that we can build stronger families and stronger marriages. Again, is is it not interesting that the Apostle Paul gives prominence to both those relationships? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33, he says, I want your marriages to look like Christ in the church. We have the opportunity to strengthen our marriages. And as we do, strengthen the church so that we can do that very task that we talked about throughout this lesson. And how about parents and children? Can't we have an environment where children honor their parents? And parents raise their children in the, in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. A home environment with all else that we're trying to accomplish that's heart and center focused on Christ. It's seen in our conversations. It's seen in what we emphasize, how we spend our time, and what we do with His Word in the home. God wants Lehman Avenue to be a strong church. I don't know if I've ever seen more more potential and raw material than in this congregation god's opening so many doors let's be a strong church but let's let god tell us lifeway research no disrespect has nothing on what the inspired word of god has to tell us if we're going to be a strong church we must find our strength in god we must let him be the foundation in every good or bad thing we're leaning on him We've got to understand who the enemy is and not get distracted by other things. The devil would love that, to take our eyes off of the mission and to realize that there's not a one of us that need to be in the stands. We all need to be on the field. question is, have you gotten onto the field? Have you made that particular move by obeying the gospel? Jared's going to lead us in the singing of a song of invitation. If you're ready to make that decision, we'd love for you to do it in this assembly. If you want to wait for some folks to leave and do it privately, we'll help you to be united with your Lord in baptism. If you're a child of God who needs to make repairs in your relationship with him or maybe with someone else, if you need to perhaps ask us to pray with you, we'd love to do that because the church is a family. And as we lean on one another, we're a stronger church. This is your invitation and you need to respond. Why not now?